0: Welcome to the Grace Point Church podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. I sit in the line to get gas at Costco. And, and and those of you who are, are watching us online, you may not have heard the laughter and the snickers that, that came from the audience today. And that's because if you've ever tried to get gas at Costco, you know that you are sitting in that line. And so I, I, I do that because I, I have told myself that the 25 minutes that I'm in line waiting to get gas there is worth the savings. And so oftentimes I will go and I'll pump put gas in the car and I'll fill it up. And these days filling it up is not a, well, that's an adventure in and of itself. But I'll sit there and I'll think to myself, what am I going to do? And there's lots of things you can do when you're filling up your car with gas. You can stand out by the pump and watch the numbers go until eventually they stop rolling. I've seen some people do that. You can uh, get on your phone and, you know, watch a a, a video or, or uh Text somebody or go on social media. There's, there's, there's things that you can do there. Uh, but I have decided that whenever I have an opportunity to sit and wait for the car to fill with gas, I'm going to take that opportunity to clean out my car. Because, listen, in the society that we live in, in this fast-paced culture that we live in, It is almost impossible for you to go and live and drive and not accumulate garbage in your car. Water bottles, napkins, Jolly Ranchers that fall in between the seats. And so you have to make a decision what are you going to do? Are you going to, when you're sitting there, there's an opportunity for you to make a decision, for you to decide what are you going to do while you're sitting there. And this is. It, it, it occurred to me a couple of days ago as I was doing that exact same thing, sitting in the line waiting to pump my gas. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm going to do the exact same thing I always do. And I'm, I'm going to collect all the garbage. And it was something that my father told me. My father used to always make me do that. And I hated it. But it was his wisdom. And as much as I hated it, as much as it bothered me when he was telling me to do it, I now see the value in it. And it's just, it's, it's such a simple thing. And the thing about wisdom is, and we've been talking about this now for five weeks, but the thing about wisdom is, is that wisdom comes into play, not in the questions of whether or not something is legal or not. It it doesn't come into play in those questions on whether something is moral or not. Wisdom usually comes into play in the little things. The, the, The decisions that we make that are small, that either one is legal, either one is moral, But what is the wise thing to do? What's the smart thing to do? And and so in the beginning, from the very beginning, we talked about this, that being wise is applying wisdom. Because many of us in, in situations, we know what the wise thing to do is, but we don't do the wise thing. So we know the wisdom, we have the wisdom, we just don't apply it. And when we don't apply it, we're not being wise. So much of the book of Proverbs history tells us was written by uh, an ancient king of Israel named Solomon. And and in another part of scripture, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, Solomon is praying to God and he prays this. He says, give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. Now Solomon was raised up as a follower of God. His father was a follower of God. In fact, Scripture tells us that his father was described as a person who was a man after God's own heart. And Solomon was the king. So the king, as the king, he was very, very familiar with all of the rules and all of the laws. So when he prays and he says, give me an understanding heart, and that, that word understanding is actually better translated as wise and discerning. See, this is Solomon asking God for wisdom. He says, give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. Now, when he says right and wrong, our first reading on this, we would look at this and we would say he's trying to he's saying so that I know the difference between good and evil. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about how do, I, how do I tell the difference between good and evil because we know the difference between good and evil. See, what he's talking about here is I want to know how am I going to make the right decision in a situation or make a, the wrong decision that's going to lead me somewhere where I don't want to be or don't want to go. In other words, do I want to spend that 10 minutes that my car is being filled with gas on Facebook... Or watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is now available on your phone, so it's an amazing time we live in. Or, do I want to spend that time cleaning out my car, doing something productive, using that time wisely? See, these are the decisions that we're talking about, and this is what Solomon is saying. He's not saying, help me to understand what's the difference between good and bad, what's the difference between good and evil, he's saying, help me to make the right decisions in these situations so that I understand what I'm supposed to do. What's the best thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? And so today, as we wrap up our series, there's something that I I really saved for the end as, as we're closing out our time that we're talking about wisdom because there is one thing that is this idea, this stream that runs all throughout Proverbs. That if we don't understand, if it's not the one thing that we take away from this. That it may be the one thing that keeps us from letting wisdom, being wise in our lives, actually happen. And that theme that runs throughout Proverbs is that we need to understand anger anger all throughout proverbs there's a theme where he talks about anger and what 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 the writer in proverbs the writers in proverbs tell us about anger is this is that if we don't understand it if we don't know how it affects us and how it affects other people we will be unable to make wise decisions well, that seems kind of weird, right? How does being angry or our anger keep us from being able to make wise decisions? Well, it's not just the anger that's in us, but it's also how understanding how people respond when they are angry. So that's what we're going to do this, more, this afternoon. We're going to go through that because it's important for us to know. Because anger, and many of you have people in your lives who, if you were to describe them, one of the words you might use... Is angry. And anger is explosive. Anger destroys things. But what we're going to see is that it has a purpose. So here's Solomon. And Solomon's going to tell us that anger. Makes us do stupid things. That affect not just our relationships. But they affect our body. He says this. He says short-tempered people do foolish things, right? And we know this because for many of us, we'll do something when our temper is short. And as soon as we're out of that situation, we'll look back on it and we'll go, what in the world was I thinking? And we feel like a fool because we were a fool. Short-tempered people do foolish things. And he also says this. He says, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body jealousy is like cancer in the bones see solomon is equating peace wisdom with having a healthy body peace the absence of anger the absence of all of this rage is equivalent to having a healthy body and we're seeing that today scientists are telling us research is showing that there is nothing that compares to What anger can do to your body for heart disease, for heart attacks, their anxiety has, is no comparison depression, no comparison. Um, what are the other things? Uh, sadness, any other emotion, none of those are as hard on your heart as anger is, but anger doesn 't just destroy our bodies, it also destroys community. He writes this he says a hot tempered person starts fights now he's not just saying that a hot-tempered person goes around and fights people he's also saying that a hot-tempered person goes around and because of the way that they behave they start fights among people you know what I mean do you know that person who comes into your conversation drops a few bombs walks away and all of a sudden everybody is angry Right? A hot-tempered person starts fights, not just fighting, being part of the fight, but he starts fights where other people are involved. And that's the problem with when we're hot-tempered. We throw words around like they're weapons, and oftentimes we do so much damage with them. The other thing that um, happens when we get angry is that it changes our ability to be wise. It says people with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. And we talked about that just a second ago, that, that when you do something in your, in your anger, that you look back on it and you think, man, that was so stupid. That was so foolish of me to do because when we're angry when we're when our anger is uncontrolled when we're acting strictly and purely out of that rage that we get sometimes when we get so angry we don't think straight all we can think about is destroying something we lose the ability to make wise decisions hot tempered people must pay the penalty If you you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. What he's saying is, is that anger is addictive. Anger is addictive. That when you get angry, it doesn't just happen once. It is just like an addictive drug. That once you get started being angry, that you keep doing it more and more. Have you ever known somebody that you knew? Have you known them for years? And when when you first met them, they were just kind of angry. And now years have passed and they're really angry. It's because it's addictive and it grows inside you. And the problem with anger is, is that we don't want to admit when we're angry. Just like any other addict does. You go up to a person who is addicted to something and you say, hey, you know what? I think you're doing too much of this. You might be addicted. What is the first thing they say? No, I'm not. It's the same with anger. We don't want to, we don't want to admit that we're angry. And part of the reason is, is because when we admit that we're angry, it makes us vulnerable. And so we don't want to be vulnerable, so we won't tell people. So we hide it. And we say, well, I was just blowing off steam. Or, you know what? You weren't there. That person really... That, that person really deserved it. Or, I was just telling it like it is. I just wanted to be straight with them. So we, we hide our anger. And then what happens is, in order to keep up the fiction that we're not angry, we have to do more things to hide our anger, and we get even angrier. And that's why the most dangerous people are not the people who are loud and boisterous when they're angry. Right? Right? the most dangerous people are the ones who are quiet when they're angry because they don't let it out and it grows inside and they don't admit it. So Proverbs tells us that anger can be dangerous. But the other thing that Proverbs tells us is that anger can be good. People with understanding control their anger A hot temper shows great foolishness. Now, look what he says. He doesn't say people with understanding control their actions when they're angry. He says people with understanding control their anger. Now, a lot of us would say, well, I don't get it. Angry, you know, if you're a good person, you're not supposed to get angry. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach that we're not supposed to get angry. It says, don't let your anger be uncontrolled. A wise person controls their anger. So we're supposed to get angry, but it also says, it's interesting because it says that if you don't get angry, it's a sin. That sounds weird. The Apostle Paul years later, would write this uh, in, in his letter to the uh, Ephesians. He would write this. He said, be angry and do not sin. Now, this is a command. It's not saying, listen, as you're walking along in your life, if you happen to get angry, if something happens to happen and you lose control and you get angry, do not sin. That's not what it's saying. He's saying, listen. There are times when you have to be angry. So when you are, when you need to be angry, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. John Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 300s, he wrote wrote this. He said, describing this unique thing about anger, he says, he who is angry... Whereas he has no cause to be. Sins. But. He who is not angry. Whereas he has cause to be. Sins. If there is a reason for you to be angry. And you don't get angry. That is the same thing. As being angry. When you don't have any reason to be angry. Both of them. Are a sin. Both of them. Are. Or something that we're not supposed to do. He's not saying don't get angry. He's not saying get angry. Lose control. He's saying we have to control our anger. We have to have control to anger. In fact, um, the, the phrase where it says control your anger in other translations. And that phrase and you look in other places in scripture. The words that the phrase that it uses is slow to anger. Be slow to anger. In fact, this phrase, be slow to anger, is how God describes himself. There's this part, there's this um, account in, um, in the book of Exodus, where Moses is talking to God. And, and, and Moses is, is receiving from God the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, he, I, listen, I, I want to know, who do I tell them who you are? They're going to ask, who do I say gave me these? And this is God's response. He says He says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger. This is God's description for himself. This is how God wants himself to be presented the very first time that people are going to say, "Hey, listen, who is this guy who is giving us these rules? Who is it?" And Moses says, "This is what God told him to say." I am the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger. And some of us, maybe we grew up or we know people who say, listen, that, I don't believe that because you know what? I believe in a God of love and a God of love never gets angry. So if you believe that God is a God of love, then you can't ever believe that God would get angry. But listen, if you never get angry about anything, then you can't possibly love anything. Because when the thing that you love or when the person that you love is being threatened by something, when the person that you love is under attack from something or from someone, our natural response to that attack is anger. If someone is attacking someone you love, you don't just say, oh, he will be fine. Right? If someone is attacking someone that you love, you don't just go, he will find a way to deal with it. When someone is attacking something or someone that you love, our first response is anger. There's an author, her name is Rebecca Pippert, and she wrote this book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And in it, she describes it like this. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love. Ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates the drunkard, the liar, the traitor in the son. And if I... A flawed and self-centered woman can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition. How much more a morally perfect God who made the mess. True love always gets angry. And so anger in its purest form is simply love in action. Anger in its purest form, anger as it was created, as it was supposed to be, is love in action to defend something that we love that is being attacked. That's why we're supposed to be angry. That is supposed to spur us into anger. So if something that you really love is being threatened, then you have to take action all of us at one time in our lives have had something or someone in our lives that we truly, truly loved that came under attack and our first response was to go after him. The problem is sometimes the thing that we have to go after is not another person. It's not another thing. Sometimes the thing that we go after is an addiction or a character trait. Or a habit. And then it makes it hard. Because too often our anger is directed, our anger should be directed at the thing that is causing the problem. And instead we direct it at the person. And so when we look at anger, in fact, for us, when we when we get to this place when we're really, really angry, where where something is really, really making us upset, the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. What am I defending? Because if anger in its purest form is love in action against something where what you love is being threatened, then whenever we get angry, whenever rage starts to build up inside of us, we need to pause for a moment and ask ourselves, hold on a second. What is it that I am defending? What am I defending? What is the thing that I feel like is under attack that I have to defend? Because whatever it is that you are defending, that is the thing that your heart loves the most. And so that's why when we read uh, the part of Scripture that we call the Old Testament, a lot of people read it, and in fact, there are a lot of very educated people who say that they cannot accept God because when they read the Old Testament, they see a lot of these times where God is angry. And they say, how can God be angry? How can you say that God, a loving God, gets angry? It's because the Old Testament, that first part of Scripture, is full of accounts of God's creation that was under attack. What and who God loved most was under attack. And so, of course, he became angry. For many Christians, we believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he lived the perfect life. And yet Jesus got angry. He got angry at the money changers in the temple. He got angry with the religious people. He was angry outside of the tomb of Lazarus. He's throwing tables. He's he's yelling at people. He's very passionate. I mean, he's angry. Why is he angry? Because Jesus is a man of perfect love. So he gets angry, but he doesn't sin. And the trouble for us is is that we live in a culture, and the cultures that we live in, the cultures that we experience today are either way on one side or they're way on the other side. On the one side, we have the Western liberal cultures where everything that is of value is about my rights, is about how I feel, and so if I get angry, I just let it out because I have every right to let it out. And the anger just goes. And then on the other side, for those that were raised in a more traditional culture, a more family-oriented culture, what do we do? When there's an opportunity to get angry, you get angry. You don't let it out. You hold it in. You smile. We suppress it. And what Proverbs is telling us is that it's not supposed to be either of these. It's not supposed to be, I have... All of this anger, I'm just going to let it out, uncontrolled, let it go. It's not supposed to be, I have no anger. I'm not going to respond at all. It's supposed to be right here in the center. I am slow to anger. I have controlled anger. Here's the problem. Here's a couple of verses that come right after each other. And if you take them one at a time, it might not make sense. So you have to get them together because that's how Proverbs is written, that the words have counterbalances. So here he says this, don't testify against your neighbors without cause. Don't lie about them. And then he says, and don't say, now I can pay them back for what they've done to me. I'll get even with them. I'll get even with them. So in verse 29, we see this guy, and he's really angry, right? He wants to pay them back. He wants to get even with them. But then in verse 28, it says, don't do anything when you don't have just cause. So how can you have anger where it's disproportionate to the cause? Why is it that we get angry over things that we really shouldn't get angry over? Have you ever noticed that when somebody um, cuts you off in traffic or when somebody says something uh, unkind or rude to you, when somebody, uh, you know, disrespects you, that we take that very hard, that we get really upset, that we, we want to get even with them? I mean, that's the essence of road rage, right? Someone does something to disrespect me and I want to get even with them. Do you, ever, do you ever stop for a moment and think? And usually you don't because I'm one of those guys. And, and, and sometimes I don't stop and think. But later on, after some time has passed, I look at it and I think to myself, why is it that I was so angry about that? That sometimes the things that we get so angry about, the things that really build up rage inside us, are things, relatively speaking, that are not that important. So we rage about um, somebody cutting us off in traffic, but we don't give a second thought to the millions of people who are dying uh, around the world because they don't have clean water. We we get upset when when the when the person in front of us has eighteen items in the fifteen items or less line at the grocery store, right? But but we just kind of give passing notice. To the fact that there are more slaves today than there have ever been in the history of man. Our anger is disproportionate to what it is that we are feeling. We get mad at things that don't make any sense for us to get mad at. And the reason that we do that. The reason that our anger is always directed at things that don't matter in the big scheme of things. Is because too many times. The thing that we love most in our life is not God. It's not God. And when we don't love God, when when all of our passion and, 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 and everything about us that is in us is not focused just on God, when God isn't the most important thing in your life, we will put something else there. And so we'll have good things in our lives and we'll take those good things and we will try to make them The God of our lives. And we don't even notice it. We'll take that good thing and we will make it so that it's everything. And so we turn these good things into things that they're not supposed to be. We want peace. We want security. We want identity and self-worth. We want approval from people. And if we don't get those things, if we don't get them from God, we will try to get them from somewhere else. We will try to find something else that gives us those things. And whatever it is that we try to find, that becomes our God. Do you see how tricky that can be? See, if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody and you break up with them, there's supposed to be sadness, right? Because if you're in a relationship and you've invested time and you've invested yourself in it, and then all of a sudden that relationship ends, there's supposed to be sadness. It's a natural reaction. But if your response to a relationship that ends is, I want to kill myself, I don't want to live anymore if I can't be with that person, then what we've done is we've taken that good thing and we have made it everything. We've taken that good thing and we've said that there is nothing more important than that, even God. And so all of the things that we got out of it, our feeling of not being alone, our feeling of 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 needing companionship or needing physical affection, all of that, we put that in the place of God. And when it's gone, we don't have anything. We don't have peace. We don't have security. We 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 don't have identity. We don't have approval. And so no wonder. That if everything that we have is focused on that, that person, that thing, and we have made that thing the only thing in our lives, that we wouldn't want to go on. You know, it's it's interesting because for many people, you won't really get it until you have children because children is where you will see your entire life change and the reason is this is you know you don't sacrifice any you don't sacrifice for any other relationship as much as you sacrifice for your children even if you are a bad parent even if you did so many things wrong the amount that you have sacrificed for your child is huge. In fact, we sacrifice more for our children than we sacrifice for our spouses. And so when we see our child do something stupid, we want to kill the stupid that's in our child. Our problem is, is sometimes if our anger is uncontrolled... In an effort to kill the stupid in the child, we end up killing the child. We end up doing damage to the thing that we are trying to preserve because our anger isn't controlled. We're not slow to anger. And so instead of doing a surgical strike where we're trying to get that one thing that's in the child and take it out, we end up destroying everything. So how do we do? What do we do? do? How do we... How do we get to this place where we know how to respond? How how do we be a person who is slow to anger? How do we be a person who knows how to be angry well? Who who knows how to be angry smart? Who, Who knows how to use anger in a way that is not just beneficial for you, but is beneficial to the people around you, to the people that you interact with. Well, the first thing that you have to do is you have to admit it. You have to admit it when you're angry. For some of us, we don't want to admit it. And so when somebody gets us upset, when we get anger, angry, and, 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 and you go after the person or the person comes back to you, and they say, listen, you know, are you mad? And what will we say? We'll say, no, I'm not mad. I'm fine. No big deal. And then when other people, this this is what happens. We go to other people and we're talking and he says, hey, I can't believe that that he did that to you, right? And our response is usually something along these lines. It's okay. I, I don't let that bother me. It really didn't mean anything to me. And so what are we doing? We're hiding our anger. And how our anger is coming out is it's coming out as belittling the other person. Because what we're trying to say is, and what we're trying to convey to the person we're talking to is, is that guy over there is so small and insignificant that what he did makes no difference in my life. Those are not words of a person who is not angry. Those are not the words of a person who has control of their anger. Those are the words of a person who can't control it and has found a way to let it out by attacking somebody else. And it happens way too often. Look at these last two verses, right? It says, and don't say, now I can pay them back for what they've done to me. I'll get even with them. What he's talking about here is, is, is who is it that is saying, it, right? He's talking about someone who's talking to himself. Now I can pay them back. This is a person who is talking to himself. It's self-talk. And self-talk, what we say to ourselves, is really what makes us angry. What makes us angry is not what happened. What makes us angry is what we tell ourselves about what happened. What makes us angry is not something that we lose, but it's what we tell ourselves about what that loss means. That's why sometimes somebody will do something, and they won't even know that they upset us. They won't even know that they offended us. But to us, it's this big, huge thing. And I never want to see that person again. I, I want to end that relationship. I never want to talk to them. I don't want to hang out with them anymore. And they're walking along thinking that nothing, nothing happened. Because it's not about what happened. It's about what we tell ourselves about what happened. And almost always, when we ask ourselves the question, what am I defending? The thing that we're defending is our ego. The thing that we're defending is our pride. Um, so, Almost on a daily basis, um, my daughter goes into the city for school. And then at the end of the day, she calls and says, you know, can I can you come and pick me up from the BART station, which I'm always happy to do. But it's always tough to gauge when you're going to get there. You know, and I, I am a person who is very, um, I, I take a, a time very seriously. So, if you say to me, "I'm going to be there at eight o'clock," I want to be there at seven fifty-nine, so that at eight o'clock we can get in the car and we are gone. That's an important value for me. So, one time, my daughter says, "Okay, I'm going to be there at eight o'clock," and I think to myself, "Okay." Trader Joe's has these ice cream sandwiches, but instead of sandwich, it's a brownie. And then it has coffee ice cream inside. I know I've told you guys about this before. This is how good they are. And so I say to myself, okay, I've got this time, and I know it's going to take me 15 minutes to drive down to Trader Joe's, get inside, grab it, go through line, and get back in the car and get up to the BART station so that I'm able to be there on time to once again prove that I can be on time when I'm supposed to be on time. But instead, something happens at home. I'm dawdling around, I'm, I'm, I'm talking on the phone, I'm doing something, and instead of leaving when I'm supposed to leave, I leave late. And so now I'm calculating this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can make up two or three minutes in Trader Joe's, I've got to hurry, so I'm zipping down, I get to Trader Joe's, I've got my brownie sandwiches, I'm in line, and the lady in front of me has 15 items in the 10 items or less aisle. And I am mad. I am mad way more than I need to be. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking to myself, I am now going to be late. And I'm upset. And I'm angry. And I want to say something. But I don't. But I do want to say something. But I don't. Why am I angry? What is it that I am defending? I love my daughter, but I'm not defending her. I'm defending my pride. I'm defending my ego. I'm defending my right to be able to arrive at 759 so that when she's late, I can go, yeah, what happened to 8 (laughs) o'clock? You see, the thing that I was angry at, the thing that I was defending in me, was me. And it shouldn't have been me. And that's the problem that we have is that that's the thing that we want that that comes out of us. Listen Listen to these last two verses, this last verse. He says this, If your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying if you have an enemy, you're supposed to save them. See, this isn't like today where it says, listen, if your enemies are hungry, go get them some in and out take it to their office, and, and it's a peace offering. Right? In this culture, food and water is what you need to survive. It's life. And he's saying, listen, when your enemies are at this point where they need food and they need water, when your enemies are at this point where they are about to die, where they are about to fail where they are about to be humiliated, where they are about to be rejected, when your enemy is in that place, you're supposed to save them. You're supposed to redeem them. You're supposed to be the one to come forward for them. And that is completely different from anything else in history that we see. Every culture in this time, they all had wisdom literature. You go to the Egyptians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Sumerians. They had authors who wrote on wisdom. None of them said anything like this. This is a whole brand new thing. They're not saying, listen, if your enemies are about to die, don't attack them. They're not saying, if your enemies are about to die, leave them alone. They're saying, listen, if your enemies are about to die, the people who want to kill you are about to die, save them. Rescue them. Preserve their life. Listen, for some of us, it's easy to preserve life. How many times have we stepped out to preserve the dignity of our enemies? To preserve the reputation of our enemies? To preserve the happiness of our enemies? He's saying when they're about to go, when they're about to fall over the edge, you are supposed to step in there. Step in there. So what do we do? What do we do when when we're faced with these situations? When we're faced with these situations? well, Listen, when you're faced with rage, when you're faced with anger, when someone is coming at you, there's only three things that you can do. One, you can withdraw. You can say, hey, I don't want to take it. Do what you want. And think about it when our children do it. Right? When something happens in our child. I think the most painful words that a parent can ever hear is a child saying, I don't love you. You've never done anything for me. So imagine the child comes to you and says, I don't love you. You've never loved me. You've never done anything for me. What do you do? What's your response? Well, you can do. You can withdraw. You can walk away from the kid. You can say, listen, I don't want to take it anymore. Do whatever you want. And if you do that, you've lost the kid. The other thing that you can do is when they start to rage at you, you rage back at them. They start to yell at you, you start yelling back at them. And listen, you've probably had 25, 30 years more practice than them, so you're going to win. You'll win the argument with them. But you've still lost the kid. The only thing that we can do when we're faced with this anger, when we're faced with this, the only way to save it is to target the problem. Not the person to target the idiocy in the kid and not the kid. And so what do you do? You come close. You insist on what is the truth. And then you stay close even while the anger and the rage comes out. You let the anger come out without retribution. You let the anger come out without fighting back. And that's the only way that you'll be able to save the child. You be mad at the idiot in the child. But you try to do everything that you can to save the child. Dr. Martin Luther King, who is probably the most well-known proponent of love and meeting hate with love, he wrote this, and this is a little bit long, so we are going to run a little bit long, but this is so powerful that I want to read it to you. He, He says this, he says, We must in strength and humility meet hate with love. Of course, this is not practical. Life is a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of dog eat dog. Am I saying that Jesus commands us to love those who hurt and oppress us? Do I sound like most preachers, idealistic and impractical? Maybe in some distant utopia, you say, that idea will work, but not in the cold, hard world in which we live. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it has led to inexorably, to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered to hate and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts... With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation, but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. So to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering By our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will. And we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. Because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail. And we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence in our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down with our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. This is not just a story that was told by a civil rights leader. But this is the story of God in the life of man. See, for many of us, we don't admit it, but we're mad at God. We're mad at Him. We want this. We don't want that. We don't get what we want. We get what we don't want. And we're angry, but we're in denial. And so when someone says, you know, hey, what what do you think about God? Oh, yeah, I love God. But inside, we're upset because we're not getting the things that we think that we deserve. And the proof is, is that when God became human, when God came and had the ability to be killed, what did we do? We killed him. We mocked him. And we took him all the way to the cross. And what did he do? See, God didn't withdraw. He didn't step back and say, listen, I don't want to deal with you anymore. Do whatever you want. But God also didn't rage back. He didn't meet us word for word. He didn't try to take retribution out on us. He didn't give vengeance to us. What God did is he went to the cross. He absorbed our anger. He stayed close and let us rage. And he took the anger that he didn't deserve. And he took the anger that we deserved. And his words were, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And when you get that, when you see your life and you see that because Jesus loved you so much, that he took all of your rage and all of your anger and all of your mistakes and all of your bad choices and all of your bad decisions and he took all of that on himself and he said, listen, you're not going to have to deal with that. I'm going to take that for you. When we come to that place where we finally get that, then we'll understand and we'll look out at the world completely different and we'll look out and we'll say, If Jesus did that for me, how can I get angry at you? Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.